Kevin. It's good to see you. It's good to see anybody, um, right? It uh, means a great deal that you're here to worship with us. I have one additional announcement that came in after we had done the announcements, and that is Shirley Bryan's service will be this Friday at 2 o'clock. However, it is a private gravesite, family only. Uh, you know, Bill and Shirley served as pastor. He was the pastor here and forever ago about, <laughs> I think he, he was 77 through 86, roughly. And then Bill went on to be chaplain of Dallas Seminary, but Shirley built our women's ministry, and I cannot express how many lives Bill and Shirley impacted, and Shirley especially among women. And um, they have been a part of us for a long, long time. Bill went to be with the Lord a couple of years ago, and uh, she just did. So the service will be Friday at 2, graveside only, but it will be streamed. And we will send out the link so that you can watch that streamed or you can watch a recording of it later. I know I, when Gary and I were texting back and forth, uh, the oldest son the day Shirley died, I said, there are going to be a lot of women really bummed they can't be there because of how much Shirley meant. So please keep the three sons in prayer, Gary, Eric, and Phil, and their families and the grandchildren. It is a big deal. Um, I suspect for all of us, the events of uh, Wednesday night, uh, shaped our week in a lot of ways. I was in meetings and um, then heard about what was going on in our nation's capital. And I normally do my sermon outline on Wednesday night. And you don't have a sermon outline because I sat and stared at the TV in sadness all evening. Um, uh, sadness not because I'm choosing sides. Uh, sadness just because it's sadness, right? It's uh, such a barometer of the division within our country um, and um, it's tempting to choose one side or the other and say whatever those sides are I personally think there's more than two sides but choose a side and then say the other people are all wrong or to say we're all sharing the blame we love to say that especially when we know we are um, um, the reality is that it reflects a brokenness in our society that has been brewing for some time. And um, we have to get to the point where we as the people of God go to our Lord, right? Um, because we can't fix this. We can't fix this. It is, it is a bigger problem than just what we can say or yell or anything else. Um, and it's particularly important that we start with asking God, what about me? How do I respond? And, and how have I contributed? And, and it's, we're pointing a lot of fingers today as a society. There's a lot of finger pointing. And everybody's wound up and you're scared to death how you say anything, Right? This week alone, I have been called too liberal, too conservative, and too moderate. I, I promise you, literally, this week, I've been called all three of those things. Um, I told my oldest daughter about that, and my, she texted back, hashtag winning, Dad. Um, I mean, that's, we are, we're broken, and um, it's heartbreaking, and 
as we try to navigate it, no matter what we do, it, it's open to negative interpretation. I, I beg you to pray. I beg you to pray. Uh, this feels more like, I, I've said before, Larry Job, a mentor of mine, a member of our church, was a 30-something-year-old high official in the Richard Nixon administration. I said, so Job, is, is this um, worse than, than Vietnam? Watergate, that period. He said, absolutely worse. Absolutely worse. The venom to me is the closest thing I've ever seen in history is the McCarthy era as far as just the venom, both ways. And until we ask ourselves not what your problem is, but what's, what am I going to do? Because that's right. That's spiritual responsibility. Um, I hope you'll pray with me. As, as Bill Bryan used to say, has it come to this? We're going to pray. Um, because we're, we're, in, we're in trouble as a nation. And um, I know all of you, because I can see it in your eyes, are deeply disturbed and hurt and broken. And um, I've gotten to the point where my primary response now is just overwhelming sadness. Um, today's the first sermon for me of the year. And I thought uh, I would just kind of do a reset. This is something I do for myself personally, the first of every year. Um, it, it's how I, I, I'm very goal and, and future directed. Yes, it, it is snowing. Everybody look together. <laughs> look a little longer. Okay. Um, and um, Bring out the snow trucks. Go to the grocery stores. We're all going to be frozen in. We'll never eat again. That's the Texas response to one flake of snow, right? Right? Um, <laughs> uh, man, I forgot what I was talking about. Um, how you start the new year is, is really important. And I want to take you to the passage of Scripture that I go back to every year at the beginning, and that's Philippians chapter 3. Um, Philippians chapter 3. You know me, I, I love teaching Philippians, although I have to admit, whatever book of the Bible I'm teaching now, I typically say this is my favorite book of the Bible. Um, I finally have admitted to that myself, although I don't think I've ever said that about the book of Numbers, for what it's worth. I, I don't think I've gotten to that point, but... Um, I love the book of Philippians, and Philippians chapter 3 has touched me, I would say, my, all my adult life, but I think it goes back to my high school days. It, it really is a powerful passage. In the first of Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul describes his resume as, as a spiritual leader among Jews, and he says, you know, as to the law of Pharisee, you know, from the tribe of Benjamin, he goes through his, uh, his list, you know, as to the law blameless. I mean, it's one circumcised on the eighth day. It's, in other words, to us, it doesn't mean as much, but, but for the reader at that time, the Jewish reader, he's saying, I got all of you, I've got all the merit badges. I've got it all. You, no one can compare to my resume spiritually. And, and then in verse 7, it turns. And that's where I'd like for us to begin. Let, let me say one thing, though, before we get going. This is for us personally, but it's also for the church. 
And on one level, the first thing I want to say to us as a church, we are scarily blessed. We are remarkably blessed. Your, your giving keeps shocking the leadership of the church. We've, we've come through COVID continually being in healthy position financially because of your generosity, even when you can't be here. I don't like everybody not being here, but thank God it happened when we could stream so that people are being able to be a part of it. Our individual ministries have struggled. We'd be the first to admit, as we've tried to navigate this, we haven't always done it the best, but, but we've seen God continue to work through it all. Um, we're a, a really blessed church, but we also have some challenges, Right? The context in which we're living is a, is a massive challenge right now. It just is. And, and people are afraid and they're angry and they're sad. And I mean, every emotion in the world is out there. And um, not without reason. Um, and the church, our, our staff has turned over. We've, we've lost Cindy Rawls who started working here when she was six years old. And, and worked here until the end of the year. I mean, surely, I mean, Cindy was here 23 years faithfully serving in women's ministry. And Rachel Marcello, much shorter, but huge impact. They've stepped down. We're thrilled to have Raina here. Raina is our new women's director, and we're, we believe she's God's woman for the job. But it's still change. And then, finally, I'm leaving. And I so for, you know, I mean, that is, a, even those who are celebrating, it is a change, right? Um, it's a significant change because... Because whoever has my position has a huge impact. And, um, and choosing someone in this context is particularly difficult. So before I get any further, can I ask you to commit to pray every day for the church's selection of the next pastor? We're going to ask every minister, I mean every ministry in the church to commit as they do their ministry to make that one of the patterns that we all have joined to pray I think we've got the best search firm in the business looking for us. I think we've got incredible candidates, but we've got a really difficult position. I'd really appreciate your prayer for it. Um, and you say, well, you're going to be gone. Who do you care? Well, I've spent 28 years of my life coming to this campus every week. 28 years. The worst thing for me would be to leave and then see this church not thrive. So... Anyway, Philippians chapter 3. Um, this, this is the passage that I go back to, especially at the beginning of the year, but throughout the year as well. The Apostle Paul says, verse 7, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider them lost for the sake of Christ. All that good stuff I've listed that's so great, it's nothing. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. Knowing Jesus is worth giving up everything else. Knowing Jesus is what's giving, is worth giving up everything else. Some of the reason we're so uptight right now is we're having to give some things up. And we're finding out that some of them are, are really, really important to us. And Apostle Paul, in part one sense, would say, is, is knowing Jesus enough? Is he enough? You know, we Americans are so spoiled. You go to other parts of the world, and 
I've worshipped in, in, on dirt in open air in Nigeria with people who, who live, carry wood on their back to build fires, to cook. And they have so much more joy when they worship than we do. You know, we, we, we have so much. And, and we see something slip away. Depending on your perspective, you fill in the blank. And we lose it. I consider all that stuff garbage, rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Notice he's thrown the gospel in there. Very quick summary of the gospel. I have gained right standing before God through Jesus. And, and that implies all of the gospel. The apostle, all of this is about Jesus. All of it is focused on Jesus. All of it is directed about Jesus. That's the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. That's the gospel. And he said, all that stuff doesn't matter. I just want to know Jesus. Verse 10, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I always get excited about that phrase. And then he slips that other one in there. And the participation in his sufferings, becoming like in his death, so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. One of the things you'll find out if you read scripture and and really pay close attention is sometimes salvation more often than not salvation is something we the verb is used as something we gain the moment of faith I was saved right that we hear that said all the time but scripture also will talk about we are being saved scripture views salvation obviously is sure at the point of our faith he's just made that true I mean that clear but there is a sense in which we are continuing in the process of salvation until we're at glorification in the presence of God and being made perfect that's all a part of salvation and and it's all a process. One of the themes you're going to pick up this morning is I'm going to challenge us all to think of who we are not just based on who we are now, but on what we're striving to become. In Scripture, our identity is who we are now, and our identity is in Christ. Uh, first uh, imperative in the book of Romans consider yourselves therefore dead to sin in other words our identity is defined by the gospel this is who I am and many times if you ask someone who are you they say well I'm a Christian I'm uh, you know I'm I do this, I'm this, yeah, I'm that, you know, I, I, a homemaker, I'm an architect, you know, it's all these nouns. And that's good. There's a place for that. And who we see ourselves to be is terribly important in shaping how we'll live our lives. But as we look at the year coming, I want to challenge us to also define ourselves based on what we're striving to be. Use fewer nouns and more verbs. I want us to define ourselves by those directive goals, who we're striving to be. Not just who we are now, because Satan loves to whisper in our ear about who we are now, right? Who am I now? Well, you're a loser. You're, you're short. You know, 
you're old and retiring, right? Yeah, you, you've, you've done awful things, right? But the great thing about Scripture is first, God looks at us solely on the basis of what Christ accomplished on the Christ. So God looks at us in all of the perfections of Jesus. And he loves us with the hope of what we can become through the power of the Spirit. And, and this year, I really want to concentrate on that active movement. Um, I want to know Christ. You're thinking, Paul, you know him. No, he says, I want to know him. And somehow I'll attain to the resurrection of the dead. Verse 12, not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on, taking hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself having to take hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on to the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. Did you catch that? Straining for the goal. Visual image that's often given as sprinters finishing a sprint in the Olympics or in a track meet. And as they lean in and stretch their chest to try to hit that tape before anyone else. Doing everything, using everything I have at my disposal to try to end well. Which, which begs the question, what are we straining toward? What are we straining toward? The context in which we're living right now, all of the problems, all of the hurt can lead to paralysis. Because Satan is telling us everything that's wrong, everything that's awful, and, and there's truth in all of it. I'm not denying it. But, but the question God would have for us is, but what about you? What are you straining toward? Did you catch that forgetting what lies behind? Did you catch that one? Now, depending on your personality, you'll respond to that differently. Uh, I'm a little bit of a depressive. Um, uh, I, I wake up three in the morning and think about conversations I blew 35 years ago. I can still do that. I can still remember failures, people that I've blown relationships with, sermons I said something that people didn't understand. You know, I, I can... I can rehearse all of that stuff so for me one of the things I have to do forgetting what lies behind is let go of my failures let go of my sadness and sometimes that's overwhelming for me um, you know lost friendships it's huge in my life mistakes that I know I've made it's huge Ways that I brought sadness to my Lord and those who love me. Huge. And Satan, one of the names for Satan is he's an accuser. So he's always whispering in my ear. And do you remember the time you did that? Who are you to talk? I'll tell you who I am. I'm one more recipient of the grace of God. That's it. And what I can talk about is what his grace means. The other side is, and I do this too is the proud side where I get caught up in all I've done. Do you know who I am? I mean, I, I went to seminary, which rhymes with cemetery, by the way. I, I, I taught with so-and-so. I sat under this person. I've served this church. I've raised great kids. Thank 
God I married well. I, I, you know, we can fall into the other side of that is fall into all the good of the past, right? And live in the past and want the past to come forward because it was so better than the present. You know, let me give you a secret. When the past was so good, there were people that were talking about how much better the past was then too. The reality is we live in a fallen world and the past and now is never going to be good until Jesus returns. That's the reality. And yet you can't live in the past. You, 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 we are now. God has set us, the Congregation of Grace Bible Church, us individually. We as a generation have been chosen to be alive now. So what are we going to do about it? That's the question. What are we going to do? It's our time. Some of you are thinking, I don't like our time. And this is our time. Forgetting what lies behind, I press on to the goal, straining. So this is just the introduction of the sermon, but we're going to be here a while. The context of it is, I want to ask us, are we straining towards something individually and as a church? As a church. When people ask me, what is your vision for grace? Um, and they always think I'm being a smart aleck. Well, I am a smart aleck, but they think my response is intended to be a smart aleck response. I always say, my vision is that we be a church. And they think, come on, man. I get that. What I'm implying is, what if you read the New Testament and all that it's implied for the New Testament church and the whole Bible and all that's implied for, for the people of God, I haven't felt like we've accomplished that yet. Um, so as I look at, at who grace is going to be in the future, I thought, let's review the, who grace is, has been, and I am sure will be. And I'm going to use a really high-tech outline of this. You can only get this if you go to seminary. Uh, this, the, my outline for who grace is going to be, I, after much prayer and meditation, is our name, Grace Bible Church. First, we are about grace. If you want to write a passage down, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. I first started attending here when I was in college one summer, and Dr. Pentecost was still pastor, and, and on the bulletin at the bottom, it had Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I personally think you have to always add verse 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man or woman should boast. The fundamental idea that brought the people of this church together was shocked reality that God chooses to deal with us in grace. Because I don't know if you know it, nobody in the world naturally deals with you on the basis of grace. All of life, apart from God's truth, is transactional. I'll love you if you love me. I'll do for you what you're, as long as you do for me. Right? It's just, it, it is embedded in so much of our lives. And then the scripture comes along and says, God chose to respond to us and deal with us solely on the basis of his grace. And it's earth shattering. 
Because, because the debt we owe to him, we cannot pay, right? Sometimes we delude ourselves into thinking, look at what I've done for God. And he says, really? Really? And the, the more we become aware of who we really are, all of us are so broken and fractured. We all have a history that is embarrassing. One of the things that's so great about Regen is it faces, it allows us to admit the mess we are. And we are. And the gospel says, but God deals with you on grace. And all you have to do is have faith. Because grace is a gift of God. It's not something you can work on, lest any man should boast. But also it says, and we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. In other words, it's not a stasis. It's not something that we don't act on. It is a gift. We, salvation is a gift we've been given, and our response is to do his work. But if you get the order out of the way, you blow the whole thing. If you make works first, then it's no longer salvation. It, it's, it is only by grace, through faith, and then the works come. It's about grace. And this church exploded in its early days to a relatively large church for that day. At that time, a church our size was considered a large church. And, and people came from the, uh, other older churches all over the area because this, this revolutionary idea that God acts on grace, not on works, and the freedom that comes. They, got, they heard lecture after lecture from the pulpit of all the good things you have to do in order to please God. And then they realized, well, they knew all along, I really can't live up to God's standard. And when they heard the gospel, people embraced it wholeheartedly. And we're always about that. But grace is something that's not only received, it's, it's a gift that is given the Apostle John says we love him because he first loved us. And, and we love because we were first loved. In other words, those who have received grace have to give grace. And quite frankly, in a lot of ways, that's harder, right? Um, we're called to give grace. We're called to be a culture of grace. And... Um, I, you know, if you've heard me much, uh, I love the pattern of the gospel of John full of grace and truth because you can't have one. There is no need for grace if there's no truth. But truth without grace will destroy you. And, and we, we have to be a people who is willing to hold on tightly to both of those things at once if we're going to be biblical. Now, the, 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 the portrait for grace is Jesus, right? Jesus hanging on the cross and rising from the dead. He is, he, when you look up grace, he is the epitome of that. There is no grace apart from what he accomplished. But he intends for us to reflect that grace in the way we deal with the world and the way we deal with each other. And quite frankly, in the division in America, it is in our church and the church throughout America, and we're not doing grace real well right now. I'm just going to tell you, we're not doing it real well. And, and if you're immediately thinking of the people that you don't think have shown grace and have not yet considered whether you are, then you've got the court behind, before the horse. Cart before the horse. In other words, you're going to have a new pastor soon. Can I beg you 
not to listen to him to see if he confirms what you already believe, but listen to him to see how God might be using his words to challenge you to what's next. We're here to be in progress, to grow, and, and, and we need to get better at grace and truth. We, we need to be relentless in our pursuit of truth, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. But also, grace has to be pervasive in the way we deal with each other, ourselves. Why? To the point that it's unreasonable, quite frankly. Why? Because we are recipients of unreasonable grace. We are recipients of unreasonable grace. Mean, it doesn't even make sense that God did what he did. Scripture teaches that shocking. You won't believe what God did. And, and, and too many of us have grown, we've lost the surprise. In fact, there, there are two, I think there are two um, antonyms to grace. One is the obvious one, legalism. You know, and Paul talks about in the book of Galatians. In other words, I don't earn my salvation. I earn my salvation by what I do rather than receive it as a gift from God. And, and legalism has always been a threat as, as the early church struggled with distortion of Old Testament Judaism and, and said somehow obeying law was the crucial thing. There's another opposite, in my opinion, to grace, and that's called presumption. Presumption says, I'm going to define to God what the standards are so that he has to meet them. I'm going to presume on his grace and tell him what he has to do so that I'm going to tell him, I know you give grace, but I don't need grace for this because I've decided it's not wrong. The Apostle Paul deals with that in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. He, he says, should we sin all the more so there'll be even more grace? And he says, God forbid. In fact, the, the phrase is untranslatable. It's so extreme. Good grief. No, that's not the point. That's presumption. Um, are we a people of grace? Are we convinced of God's grace? And are we a people of of grace and how am I doing with grace secondly we're grace bible church 2 Timothy 3 16 and 17 all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work notice again the direction is for us to do good work Jesus is the focus and the centrality of Scripture because, because grace is meaningless, with, meaningless without truth. There has to be truth. And we believe God has revealed truth in Scripture. So truth, the Scripture is where we go to be rooted. Now, do we, I, sometimes we're accused of being worshipers of the Bible. Oh, for crying out loud. I've never seen anyone bow or pray to their Bible. Right? Um, I think the best analogy of it is we treat the Bible as the words of someone who loves us and whom we love. I mean, who do you want to listen to most? The people that you know love you and whom you love. Someone has said, think of the Bible as a love letter from the God of the universe. And, and that is the sense in which we value Scripture because it is, it is the words of the God we love 
Um, Lucas last night at the service brought up something I hadn't even thought of, but it's so good. I am giving him credit, which we preachers rarely do. He, he reminded us of the reveal study, which was done by a massive church. And I really think it was like two or three million people that ultimately went through it. And they, they tried to test and say, what are the things that, that Christians who grow in Christ do? And, and preachers originated this, so they assumed what would be number one? They come to church and hear me preach, right? Obviously, the most important thing for anyone to grow as a Christian is to hear the preacher preach. Not so much. You know what they found? The primary determiner of people who grow spiritually was? People who read their Bible on their own. People who regularly open up their Bible and say, God, what would you have me to love? You think, well, I don't understand all of the Bible. None of us understands all of the Bible, right? I mean, but as my old professor says, I don't have a problem with what I don't understand. My real problem is what I understand and I haven't yet done. You know, uh, you, you, and with study Bibles, there are brilliant study Bibles out there. Buy a Bible knowledge commentary set. It's cheap. It's, it's a great starting point. There are tools. There are, you can call Lucas and Kevin. They're smart. Um, go to your Sunday school teacher. I mean, there are so many ways when you hit a log jam on understanding Scripture. There's so many ways to address that. But the key is, oh, by the way, there's no one in the world that loves me more than my wife or whom I love more. But I don't understand everything she says either. I'm just saying. So that, but I still listen. And we are, uh, as the elders spent the last three years working through what we want in the next pastor, the number one characteristic after their personal character obviously who they are, but as far as what they'll do, the number one thing that the elders kept coming back to is centrality of Scripture in their ministry. It's not going to go away. It's not going to go away. I had someone day, one of the old guys say to me one time, we need more preaching like Dr. Pentecost. I said, well, bring him back. I can't do what he does. Um, In other words, it, it, each person will do it according to their personality and their giftedness, but it's still got to be the centrality of Scripture. Grace, Bible, and then the, the hardest one to get hold of is church. If you will, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. One of the most, and I know I'm running late. Deal with it. Um, Ephesians chapter 4. I'll be quick, I promise. One of the great passages on the nature of the church. Verse 1, Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That verse just kills me. What's my standard? Worthy of the gospel. Oh, okay. Be completely humble and gentle. Wow, could we use a little of that? Be patient. Putting up with one another in love making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's, and, and notice this. I want to see how good a Bible scholar you are. See if you can pick up any emphasis in the next verse, any word that might jump out to you. There is one body, one Spirit, just as called you were, you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. He means this unity stuff. 
And unity's hard. It's just, it's just hard. Because you people just don't get it sometimes, right? You ever said that? Unity is hard. To live above with the saints we love, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, that's another story. Unity is hard. It's just hard. You have to sacrifice things. You have to listen. I was talking to a, a man, a great guy, incredible Christian. He said, but our kids are all gone and it's, we're empty nesters. And, and my wife and I have got to refigure out marriage. We're not doing it real well right now. And so I wrote him two or three things. But the last one, I said, and finally, you got to learn to listen. He said, oh. I'm not good at that. Unity comes from listening. Active listening, not just hearing words so that you can condemn them. You know what phrase I would, I would erase from the earth if I could? Yes, but. Yes, but. You know what yes, but means? I've been waiting for you to show up so I can tell you the truth. I'm going to agree, sort of, yes, but... Yes, but. Well, as long as there's yes, but, there's not unity. There's conversations, but there's not unity. I've spent my whole career here fighting to keep unity. Of people who vote differently, people who are age different people who like different music, people who like different preachers, people who like different drum sets, people who like, I mean, make a dadgum list I've welcomed Aggies and Sooners and (laughs) why because it's commanded there may be some debate about some of the things we're arguing about right now there is absolutely no debate in all of scripture how important unity of the body of Christ is It's non-negotiable. It's written very clearly. And if you're willing to sacrifice unity for something we're just arguing over, you are disobeying Scripture. Unity is primary in the sense of the church. Around truth, in grace, but unity. And it's hard. I didn't yell at the other two services. Welcome to my service. But look at what he says. But to each of us, grace has been given as Christ is apportionate. Verse 11, so Christ himself gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, the leaders of the church. What are they there for? To equip, not entertain, not make comfortable, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity. That gum unity came up again. In the faith and knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of God. The church functions not as a place we can come to and have a lovely experience every Saturday night or Sunday morning. The church exists according to the Bible to equip people to do the work of service. 
And, and as you pray for the next pastor, that's what you're praying for. Who will equip me to serve God? Not who has a nice voice. Not who, you know, whatever else. You, the question is, will they do what God has called pastors to do? And am I here to be equipped to serve God in a broken generation where it's going to get ugly? Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Look at verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is our head, Christ. Not love without truth, but also not truth without love. And when we keep those two together, it's still terribly uncomfortable, but it is an opportunity for us to grow, not sit and be comfortable. Where did I start? As you think of this year, I want to challenge you not to define your year on what you are, but define your year on what you want to do to be what God has called you to be. What is, what is God calling you individually? If you're not reading your scripture, Bible, maybe that's one of the, I'm going to, this is going to be me, a reader of the Bible. If you're not faithful in prayer, this is going to be me, faithful in prayer. If you struggle with, with anxiety or other issues, uh, I, I, you know, whatever it is that God puts in your heart, what are we going to do in light of the gospel? Because I think God has a plan. I think God is at work. And my question to you is, how shall we respond? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for your grace, your truth, and your people. Lord, I pray that we would respond to you in a way that brings you honor and praise and lives out what you had hoped for in the Bible. In Jesus' name, amen.